wise sayings. I'm going to read some of these wise sayings to you from chapter 15, um, verse 1 to 7, page 521. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise despises knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but um, perverseness in in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises a parent's instruction, but the one who heeds admonition is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the minds of fools. Now we're going to head to Ephesians, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to start at chapter 4, verse 25, on page 951. So then, put away falsehood. Let all of us speak the truth to our neighbours, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labour and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Have you noticed how uh, kids most often cry at physical pain, but completely brush off verbal assaults of the absolutely most nasty and vicious kind? Uh, One of my children, I'm not going to say which one, uh, when they were little, and I'm going to use gender neutral language, uh, used regularly to wake up grumpy. I think uh, that one took after their mother. And the first words in the morning to the siblings was, I hate you. Uh, But actually, that was no problem at all, because five minutes later, they were playing like nothing had been said at all. The words were completely... But just the tiniest little scrape, screams. On the other hand, it's been a very long time since I've cried at grazing my knee or slamming a door on my fingers. You know, you're you're grown up, you just kind of suck it up. But words, words frequently get right under my skin and touch me in emotionally very powerful ways, uh, very often with tears, either pain or joy. Words, our speech, uh, the way that we take thoughts and attitudes and ideas and get them out there, words 
are the building blocks of relationships. They're the bricks and mortar of community. Uh, they're the glue that holds people together. There's, there's more to relationships and community and culture than words. And, and we'll look at that, actually. There's more to those things than words, but there's not less than words. And the Apostle Paul, following our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, knew that well enough. And so as he begins his description of um, what, what he calls, what he describes as the new life uh, that uh, believers in Jesus Christ live, the life of a person who he describes as having put away their former self. Um, it's quite a dramatic uh, sort of description, actually, to, to stop being one kind of self and to start being another self, being renewed in the spirit of her or his mind, uh, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I mean, he really loads it up about what is the kind of new identity that we have uh, in Jesus Christ. What's the very first thing that he says in terms of actual practical behavior that this is going to mean? Ready? The first thing is, so then, verse 25 of chapter 4, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. The first thing he says is, be people who speak the truth and, and put away all of the different kinds of falsehood that we engage in. And then a little later on, along the same lines, verse 29, he says, let no evil talk come out of your mouths. The word evil there is probably a, an over-translation. Um, it doesn't mean evil in the sense of moral evil or failure or something like that. It means evil in the, the sense of what happens in your compost bin, right? Just kind of corruption and breakdown and bacteria and, and smelly things, right? Just really horrible stuff. That's what goes on in there. I, I don't like them myself. I think they're horrible. But uh, some people do, and, and my wife does, so we have one. Um, don't let any of that sort of talk that's going to smell and be corrupt and full of bacteria, don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouth, the apostle says, verse 29, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And where he ends this uh, little section as we read it uh, is with a just truly stunning challenge to live a truly human life. A human life that adequately mirrors its source. Chapter 5, verse, verse 1. Uh, therefore, summing up all of this, if you, if you do all of this stuff, if this is how you live your life, be an imitator of God. That's what you'll be like. You, you will actually be like an, a, a mirror of God. As beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, since the apostle saying you're a new creature, a new person, a new self, renewed according to the purpose of your original creation, that is you're created in the image and likeness of God, and now you're being renewed in the likeness of God, so that you reflect the one like a mirror who, who made you, that's what you're to do, is to image God. And a really, really fundamental part of that is the discipleship of our speech how we use our words. As we come to this uh, finally now integrated series on community, it's to speech that we turn. Words and the way words can build up and strengthen and deepen and enrich community or words as they can just erode and decay and evacuate community.
And so we'll see um, why words are powerful, what words are powerful, as well also noting when words are powerless. And then uh, we'll draw to a conclusion. Okay, first, why words are powerful. Uh, it's really interesting uh, when you just step back and think about it, uh, that words should have power at all. Uh, on the one hand, there are just a lot of them. Um, and we seem to give to most of them uh, the smallest attention. And I suspect that in our world now, we are people who are exposed to more words than any other generation ever. There are words coming at you like nothing else uh, with the rise of the internet and social media. And most of them just... They don't do anything. We don't pay attention pretty much to the words when they're directed towards us. And we don't pay a great deal of attention to the words that we speak, actually. We just speak them. Uh, notice, secondly, that everyone has within them the capacity to produce words. Normally, power is a little more restricted. It's restricted to the powerful. But here is a genuinely a democratised distribution of power. You have the capacity to speak words which are incredibly powerful. There's, there's no limit on that, actually, for you. And part of what I want to encourage you to do tonight is to really feel your power and to take responsibility for the way that you use your power. Don't waste it. Use it really, really, really well. At the same time, notice that words are just a bunch of hot air passed over vocal cords which vibrate at various lengths and degrees of tension and give sound a different pitch. Uh, I've got no idea if that's actually true, but that's, you know, neither do you, so that's okay. Um, and then you give them shape by your mouth and tongue and out come air. That's what comes out, isn't it? Air. But you think about it. You think about words that have been spoken to you that just touched you very deeply, that encouraged you and built you up. You think of words that were spoken to you that hurt you and that cut you down and that exposed you. Great good and great harm is done by words in relationships, in communities, in world events. And Jesus is pretty clear on why words are powerful like this. Uh, he says uh, in Matthew chapter 12 that it's out of the heart, the abundance of the heart, that the mouth speaks. He goes on to say something which is quite shocking, actually, if you don't see it in context. He says that by every careless word will you be judged that you'll be justified by your words and you'll be condemned by your words. And if you didn't have the, the previous verse in mind when you said that, you might be a bit sort of, whoa, whoa, hold on, Jesus, come on, man, we're justified by faith, right? And, and he says, actually, no, your words are a perfect expression of your heart. They express our souls, and as the giving out of our soul, uh, they also have the ability to get into another person's soul, to get under the skin and to join one person's soul with another person. That's what words do. That's why they're powerful. Uh, the Proverbs in chapter 18 puts it this way. It says, the words of a whisperer. Uh, I don't know if you uh, know any whisperers. Uh, hopefully we don't have uh, too many whisperers here. Whisperers are people that just tell you a secret. So you lean in and listen carefully. Whisperers. 
And he says, the Proverbs writes, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And actually, all words do that. They go down into us. They get in. You, know, you, you maybe don't remember that um, ad with the chalk in the black ink trying to show how um, toothpaste helps. Uh, it's a long story. Uh, and and you, they put the chalk in the black ink and it just sinks right in. And that's what words do. They get into us. They get into us. The Proverbs goes on. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Do you see how much is at stake in the way that we use our words? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And uh, what our Lord is calling us uh, to be is a community that's special, that's different, that's, that's radical actually, that's so shot through with the life and glory of God that we actually take responsibility for our words. We take responsibility for our words in deploying them for good and not for ill. We take responsibility for our words to make sure that we do deploy them when we can and we don't fail to do so. We don't just glibly think with a waft of our hands that if people can't handle our words and that's their problem, they need to stop being so thin-skinned. We are called to take responsibility for our words. And my guess is that we almost certainly overestimate the good that our words do. And we underestimate their prickliness. And the call here is to steward the power, the really very significant power of words very well. Which leads to the second point, what words are powerful? Uh, the apostle uh, says that powerfully good community building words are made up of two characteristics. Uh, truth and grace. Truth and Grace. Uh, verse 25, putting away falsehood, the apostle writes, let us, uh, all of us, speak the truth to our neighbours, for we are members of one another. Uh, in place of all the different kinds of falsehoods, and, uh, you know, lying is just one kind of falsehood. There's all different versions as well. It's worth being aware of the different versions. Um, slander uh, is a, 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 a form of falsehood. Uh, another, here's another form of falsehood, uh, flattery saying things that are untrue about another person just to make them feel good, usually to make them feel good about you. Uh, or here's another one. Boasting is a form of falsehood. Boasting is saying something false not about someone else that's bad, but saying something false about yourself that's good. And the apostle says just in, in place of all of, putting all of that falsehood back where it belongs in a very deep, dark drawer and shutting it and locking it, putting away falsehood and replacing that is to be the truth. Now, truth is the substance of our words. It's truth, the truthfulness of our words, that prevents them from being simply hot air. And, and I want to suggest to you that you can, you can kind of mull on this as we go through, that in a very important sense, speaking the truth is not just a moral matter, it's a profoundly theological issue. You see, the universe is created by the capital W Word of God. Uh, God didn't create like the way you might make dinner later on tonight, right? Take a few pre-existing ingredients and, and mix them together and, hey, presto, universe. No, no, God spoke the word into existence. Ex nihilo is the way the theologians describe it. From nothing. 
He spoke and it came into being. He spoke a righteous and true and uncorrupted word and at the very structure of its being, the universe reflects that reality, that it is word created, true word created. In that kind of universe, lying and falsehood are just foreign elements. They, deception doesn't really belong here. The universe is not neutral to falsehood. And every breach of truth, um, you can kind of think of it like this way, opens up a tiny crack in the seam of the universe. And the apostle says, no, we're to be lovers and speakers of the truth. And it's worth, you know, just beginning to allow your mind to roll over. How's your day gone? You will have interacted and, I don't know, probably said 20 or 30,000 words today, perhaps. How deeply truthful have they been? Um, Notice that speaking the truth, uh, I suspect, will occasionally be traumatic, difficult, challenging, awkward, painful, and perhaps even confrontational. Given that we're all uh, messy, difficult people, all of us, being a community that speaks the truth will mean occasionally confronting people in that messiness. It takes us back to the issue of conflict. Remember, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago and the necessity for really great wisdom as we do that. But notice uh, third, that um, speaking the truth means that our speech will include spiritual realities, which if I can put it like this, if it doesn't sound too silly, are the truest of all true things. It'd be bizarre, wouldn't it, if we're told to speak the truth, but we never quite noticed that that included, in fact, right at the top of the list, speaking about spiritual things. And I'd I'd say that this is harder than ever, actually. Uh, We live in an increasingly um, challenging, hostile, uh, difficult, secularising culture that says, look, it's perfectly all right for, for you to have some weird Christian beliefs as long as, for goodness sake, do not talk about them in public. What you do in the privacy of your own church is fine, just don't talk about them anywhere. Um, and speaking the truth means that we need to learn how to speak about spiritual realities in ways that are natural and easy and normal. Now, so let me give you some examples of this. So uh, you don't just say what you're going to do. It's very interesting. The Apostle James writes, um, in the way that you declare your plans, don't just say what you're going to do. Say, um, if the Lord wills. This is what I'm... Now, you don't have to use those exact words. And in, in the 19, uh, you know, 40s and 50s, Christians got all thinking about this. And so they, when you're thinking about something, you turn it into Latin. And God willing in Latin is Deo Valente. And then you abbreviate the Latin. And so you just say DV. And so people would use this sort of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to shopping tomorrow, DV. And everyone looking and going, what on earth are you talking about? So, so you don't have to be silly about it. But is it not true, in fact, that what you do is not just the execution of your plans, that you're not a little sovereign in your own life, that you actually depend upon the grace of God, and it is according to his will that you do your things, that you live your life. So how do you speak that truth? Uh, how do you not just attribute your successes to good planning or good work or, worst of all, good luck, but where it in truth belongs? to the grace and goodness of God. How, when someone asks you, you know, how things are going, uh, do you find a way to talk about your walk with God and the spiritual challenges and opportunities you're uh, facing at 
that moment in your life as though those things really were at the centre of your being. I mean, again, the idea is not to be forced or artificial about it, no. But the only alternative to being forced and artificial about it is not just to never say anything. How do we speak the truth like that? Whether we're talking to Christian people or not Christian people, how are we going to be lovers and speakers of the truth? I think it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul uh, uh, doesn't say what uh, my mum said to me, what I said, I think, occasionally to my children, uh, what your parents might have said to you. If you can't say something nice, then what comes next? Don't say anything at all. The Apostle says that's way too underambitious. If you can't say something nice, then think of something nice to say, says the Apostle. Something that's true, and as we'll look at in a moment, something that gives grace. In other words, he he doesn't say, uh, stop speaking. He says, harness the power of words positively for good. And it means that we'll, we'll look to kind of reduce the amount of what you might call empty talk that we have. Empty talk, just that sort of posturing stuff. You know, the, 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 the junky sort of way in which we, with irony and sarcasm and cynicism, um, use our words to keep things and people at a distance from ourselves. So that we don't commit to anything in particular. We don't commit to a cause or an idea or a person. Just stay detached. Just stay cool. And the apostle says, no, don't don't do empty talk. Don't do lying talk. In fact, he goes on, verse 29, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. If the first characteristic of powerful words is their truthfulness, the second characteristic of powerful words is that they give grace. They give grace. Uh, Grace um, comes, I think, uh, in two varieties, grace words. Uh, Sometimes it comes in key moments. uh, When people are especially open uh, or vulnerable or needy, uh, there is a a kind of a a moment, and you can feel it, that you're, you're supposed to kind of step up and say something Good, right there. Uh, I read a story about a, a uh, father, a fine, upstanding Christian man, uh, you know, very conservative, all that sort of stuff, who was given news that his son had been thrown out of university for drugs. Um, and uh, he describes his uh, journey, uh, co- his commute to uh, collect his son uh, and his son's stuff. And, uh, you, uh, you know, I don't know if you can kind of get your head into the situation with your, in your imagination. Uh, the, the, all the memories that go through the mind of a, a parent in that sort of uh, context, the, the where did I go wrong sort of memories. What about then and maybe I should have done this. And, and then at the same time, and you may not be a person like this, but I'm a, I'm a preacher and so I do this. I, you, you rehearse the speech that you're going to give. You go through your mind and you, and you can actually be very kind of um, correcting as you just decide one after another and you sort the structure out exactly the blast that you're going to deliver. And he got to his son 
and he'd figured out what to say. And what he said was, how can I help? It's a really interesting thing, don't you think? What, what's so right about that is that he got the big things big and he made sure that the little things were little. And one of the real keys in all of this is to make sure that we keep little things little and big things big because it's so very, very easy to make little things big and things that are really very, very big actually to make them quite small and to give them very little attention. Uh, when we were expecting our second child, uh, my wife Katrina went to hospital for a regular checkup. Um, it's a, a thing you do when you're pregnant, you just sort of you, you go along the hospital. And uh, you, you, what happens is you go, it's a bit of a nuisance really, and you go there and, um, uh, you know, you, you're just sort of told to do some normal things and then you go away and, and so on. Uh, except that when Katrina went uh, this time, uh, she got the news that the baby was dead and had been for several weeks. And in fact, instead of just being sent away to do uh, the regular stuff, that she would need an operation that day uh, to remove the dead baby. Uh, it was incredibly traumatising, as you can imagine, just the kind of complete reversal of life that takes place. It Actually, it's much less uh, uncommon. It's much more common than uh, you realise. And it's often the case that when someone sort of experiences this and then starts talking about it, that many, many other people kind of say, yeah, right, it's happened to me too. Um, as, you, as, you, as she sort of went back that day and got organised and saw some people, and then over the next couple of days, uh, that's a moment. That's a key moment. And it's, it's kind of hard to know what to say, isn't it, actually, to a woman that's just had a miscarriage. But at the same time, you understand this, right? It's really, really, really important that you say something. Uh, lots of people pretended that nothing had happened and said nothing because they just actually couldn't cope. They couldn't rise to the occasion. Uh, one person said, um, quote, oh, well, that's just nature's way of saying that there was something wrong with the fetus, which is probably true, do you see? So, so that person got the first part of Ephesians right, spoke the truth. But they were ungrace words to Katrina at that moment. There was a moment and it needed words that gave grace. And often in our lives, there are moments where people need us to speak words of grace. But of course, we're not always having deep and meaningful conversations or significant moments. And so what's at stake here is a general culture of encouragement and positive talk. Uh, notice how the apostle uh, describes the nature of our relationship to one another. He says, we are members of each other. Uh, when he says members, the idea here is not of a club and that we're members of a club. Uh, don't misunderstand it in that way. What he means is the body. Uh, your body has different members. It's got fingers and toes and arms and ears and all that kind of stuff. Those are the members of your body, as in when you get dismembered, right? If, uh, if you're, you, know, you, know, you watch programs that do that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, and the apostle says that, that we are members of each other the same way the members of our body are belong together, so that when one bit of you feels pain, you, you say your toe hurts, sure, but actually you're all in pain. You're, 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 everything hurts. It's all of you that's in this moment. And the apostle says we belong as members one of each other, that, that when one feels pain, we're all, when another feels joy, we're all rejoicing. 
Uh, the fact is that people around here are constantly doing good to each other. And I'm, I'm sure you know that actually, going out of their way, serving and sacrificing. And just a really important part of what it is to be a functioning Christian community is to be really great at acknowledging that and recognising that in others and thanking people when it impacts you and encouraging others in just being a giver of grace with your words. Now, it happens this week, and I don't think it's because uh, anyone knew that uh, we were, I was doing this sermon, but it happens this week that I've uh, seen some directly to me and uh, some that I've just been CC'd in four different really, really beautiful emails. Uh, what uh, I call word, uh, notes of encouragement and grace. Uh, listen to this one. Uh, this is from a, a parent at our preschool uh, to one of the staff at the preschool. Quote, from the first day I met you, I could see the incredible effort you put into your work and how much you go over and beyond to do your best and achieve excellence. That first day we met, you shuffled things around to squeeze me in for a tour of the school and you had much compassion on me in my difficult situation. Brackets, remember my ugly cry that day. And then by God's amazing work, you're able to somehow make a way for my children to attend the school at the very end of the year, a difficult time to start children. And then the, the email concludes, thank you for your dedication. Your behind the scenes work has impacted my family and so many others. Now, you know, that's like 234 words. That probably took about 75 seconds to write. But do you, do you kind of get the grace-sized difference that that actually makes to go to that effort to write a note of encouragement like that? And it's worth, you know, again, asking yourself the challenge. Um, when's the last note of encouragement that I wrote? Is that the kind of, am I a person who gives grace with my words? And, and notice again, it's a positive command. It's not, don't, don't make sure you do, uh, put all your ungrace words aside. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's a start, but it's not just, it's give grace. Give grace. I heard the story of a guy, a young student in a church where they encourage people to participate in the prayer time. And so uh, you know, might know what this is like. Uh, the, the, the kid decided, you know, I'm going to pray, I'm going to lead in prayer in the congregation. And so he stood up and he got completely nervous, as sometimes people do in these sorts of moments. Some, lots of people don't like public speaking. And worse still, uh, he had a stutter. And he used to stutter when he was nervous. And so it was just a complete catastrophe. Okay? He was a theological catastrophe. It was an emotional catastrophe. He stuttered. He lost the plot. He thanked the Father for hanging on the cross. He praised the Lord Jesus for triumphantly bringing the spirit from the grave. And finally, to his and everyone else's relief, he finally said, Amen, and sat down. And he just wants to go through the floor, but he can't just leave because that would be too bad. So the service ends. And what happens with the service ending? He makes a beeline for the door. But there's an elder in the church. This elder's a very sort of fierce, old, big presence in the church. And this elder uh, does what I do, which is plays intercept with people getting out the door. Right? So this guy's going for the door, and the elder's walking across, and it's a question of who's, and the elder gets there first and blocks the door. Now again, think, there's, there's lots of things that you could say right there. There's a whole lot of heresy that you could correct right there. And heresy matters, right? But that, that elder was not just an old and 
fierce Christian man. He was a mature, grace-filled man. And so what he said was this, and the guy reflects on this years later, decades later. Fred, if there's one, there's one thing I want you to know, whatever you do for the Lord, I'm behind you 1,000%. And then he walked away. That's grace words. Because it's very easy to let out ungrace words, isn't it? A friend of mine was visiting her sister and nephews and decided that while the sister was out, uh, she would clean the kitchen uh, for her sister. So sister's house, and my friends are kind of all or nothing sort of person, and she went, she had three hours of cleaning. This was the whole nine yards. It was the, 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 the thing in the oven. You know, have you ever done an oven? I've never done it, but the, the thing in the oven where you, the bomb goes off or whatever it is, and then you scrape all the stuff off, and it was the absolute, you could, you, could, you could do surgery on this kitchen floor once this thing was finished. Uh, And when the sister got home, all she could think of to say was, quote, this place stinks of cleaning products. I hope you didn't put too much spray and wipe on the benches or the kids might get poisoned. Now, again, that might actually be true. But do you see, those are ungrace words. And, and the, the sister was a Christian. I don't, I don't think she thought, right, how can I say the most self-absorbed, selfish, hurtful, petty words I can possibly muster right now? Let me think about my list. Got it? Bang! That's not what she did. She spoke, actually, out of the abundance of her heart right then. And she's just an ordinary Christian person. She just didn't have anything better to bring to the table in that moment. We need to learn to speak Christianly, which is to speak with truth and grace. I want to to suggest to you that one really, really good way of doing this is to learn how to become a great question asker. Uh, Asking questions, being curious, not, not, you know, um, sort of creepy sort of questions, but asking really good questions of other people is a way of extending grace by inviting them to let you into their world a little bit. Uh, And if you're not a great question asker, uh, then I've got a solution for you, which is that there's a book. I bought it to help other people, of course. Uh, uh, There's a book, which is a book of 303 great questions to ask people. I got, I got up to question, you know, number five, and that was enough for me to remember. And, but, but there's no excuse. Learn how to ask great questions because it's a wonderful way of using your words to give grace because it gets into their souls, you see, that you're actually interested. You do take notice. You actually care. You see, the, it's the beautiful balance here between uh, truth and grace and that both are absolutely needed. Uh, Truth without grace is just indulgent, a kind of mindless blurting, truth deployed in a way that puts people down. But grace without truth is just kind of sloppy and sentimental. It's like playing relational tennis by lowering the net further and further until there's no substance left in what's happening at all. It's just sort of whacking things across the floor. For our words to be genuinely 
God-shaped words, they need to be both words of truth and words that give grace. Now, at the same time, let me make a little footnote, which is to say, uh, words can be very powerful, uh, sometimes for good, occasionally for ill, but it's also true that words aren't always very powerful. Um, there's often realities that words don't change and that can be a good thing. I mentioned uh, my wife Katrina's miscarriage. Uh, one of the funny things about that little uh, moment in our experience uh, was that even when people fumbled and were awkward and kind of stammered and muttered and didn't really actually know what to say, they sort of were, you know, couldn't quite, I just, I'm so, uh, they didn't, they couldn't get it out, right? Um, if their heart was good, it didn't matter what their words were. It's really interesting, isn't it? That reality won through even apart from the words. Because what was happening there, and this is a really important thing to kind of just understand in that moment, I think it's an easily graspable illustration, uh, is that the person was more interested in Katrina's grief than in their own discomfort, so they were happy to display their own discomfort because they're actually more interested in the other person. Uh, what's going on when you avoid conversation or when you say something like, that's just nature's way of doing a good thing, is that you can't cope with feeling the discomfort of the grief of the other person. And so you bail. You just bail and you head for the hills. Um, similarly, uh, words also uh, can't make people do things, actually, um, and I'm talking here about nagging. Um, there's there's nothing much less effective uh, or dumber than nagging. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a friend who was talking with a married couple for whom nagging had gotten to catastrophic proportions, uh, and um, he said to the husband in this case, who was the nagger, um, mate, did it work last time? And the husband said, uh, nope. And then my friend said, well, how about the time before that? Did it work then? And the husband said, nope. And so my friend said, well, how about the 412 times before that? Did it, did it work in any of the last 414 times? And the husband said, actually, you know what? It did not. And my friend said, well, you know, maybe it's time to change strategy. Nagging, just thumping people with your words, is not actually going to change them. And there's no point doing it. The Apostle calls us to be good stewards of the power of our words. To speak words that are full of truth, just shot through with truth and that give grace, that really go out of our hearts into the hearts of other people in a way that builds up and encourages and empowers. And to put aside all the other junky sort of words, either the, the plain negative untruth or ungraced words, or even just the, the, the crappy words that we speak that just do nothing much at all. And at one level, that's simply a matter of discipline, right? That, you know, you can just sort of strap on your, your discipline belt here and remember that between any event and your response, particularly your verbal response, is the gap, capital T, capital G, the gap. And in the gap resides your brain and that you can activate your brain so that when you say, you just made me say that or you just made me fit, that's not true. They didn't make you at all. There's the gap. 
and you can activate your brain in the gap so that it regulates the words that proceed from your mouth. But the truth is that discipline will only ever get you so far. Uh, We need something far more dynamic and powerful in our lives than discipline, and the fact is that in the word of the gospel we have that. Because you see, God's word to us in the cross of Christ is itself a word of truth and grace. You get that right? It's, it's a word of truth, which in this case is the ugly truth that you and I are sinners, that we are damaged and damaging of others, that we lash out at God and our neighbours and Jesus needed to hang on a cross to bear that reality. And at the same time, perhaps you could say even more, it's a word of grace that our sins are forgiven. Our actual sins, your actual sins, the actual real ways in which you hurt and damage, including by your words, they're wiped away. They're really gone. They're absorbed by Jesus Christ the way a dishcloth absorbs the mess and muck on the kitchen bench, leaving it clean and good and useful. Your sins are wiped away. Do you hear it? Because it really is only to the degree that you settle your heart on God's word of truth and grace to you. It really is only to the degree that you can sink your soul into that word to you. His great yes in Jesus Christ. Rather than all the other words of judgment and self-righteousness that we hear in our world around us. It's when you know at the core of your being God's word of truth and grace to you that you yourself will become a speaker of words of truth and grace. And so play your part in actually building the community of God's people. Amen.